Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and it's wonderful to have you with us this day. Whether you are joining us here in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM, or perhaps even somewhere around the world on KFUO.org, it's great to have you with us. It's a privilege to study God's Word with you this day. We'll be looking at the assigned scripture readings for next Sunday, and that would be May 10. That, in fact, of course, is also Mother's Day. Uh, I will not be making any comments on Mother's Day. We'll look strictly at the lessons themselves and be led by God, uh, hopefully, into deeper understanding and appreciation for his word and all of his blessings to us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you continuing to give you the thanks and the praise for your Son's life, death, and resurrection, and for all that it means for us and for all brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you also for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit will bless this study, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word and all that it means for us and for all Christians. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we'll be looking at the scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday, May 10. During this Easter season, as we have next Sunday, we have readings from the book of Acts that um, replace the Old Testament reading on, on a few of these Sundays, and that will be the case for us today. We'll be looking at Acts 6, verses 1 through 9, 7, verse 2, and then 7, verses 51 through 60. So we'll be looking at uh, some sections from Acts 6 and 7. Uh, it will include uh, the stoning to death of Stephen, and we'll be talking about that. Then we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. That's the assigned epistle lesson, and the gospel lesson, John 14, 1 through 14. So first of all, let's take a look at Acts chapter 6, and a couple of things maybe just in terms of some background here. In, in Acts 5, if we look at what's been happening prior to this, um, we see the apostles are doing many signs and wonders, many miraculous things. There's that account in Acts 5 of people being uh, healed just by Peter's shadow um, as he walks by going over them and actually healing them. So people are, are sitting by the side of the road and Peter walks by and his shadow uh, goes over them and they are being healed. Um, that, of course, got a lot of attention, and the high priests and the Sadducees rise up. Uh, it says in Acts 5, they are filled with jealousy, and they have the apostles arrested. Uh, during the night, uh, when the apostles are in jail, an angel comes and frees them, tells them to go back to the temple and teach. They are then rearrested and brought back to the high priest, uh, where Peter proclaims Christ. And, of course, when they, the, the council, the, the high priests and uh, Sadducees heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill uh, the apostles. And after a long discussion, uh, they had the apostles beaten and told them not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer. Well, <laughs> the apostles obviously don't take that uh, counsel. And at the very end of chapter 5, uh, verses 41 and 42, 
It says, then they, that would be the apostles, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So they were, they were honored that they were allowed to suffer for Christ. And then listen to verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So regardless of what they were told by the chief priests and Sadducees, the, the council, the Sanhedrin, uh, they were not going to stop their pro- proclamation of Christ as the Messiah, as Savior. So that's sort of the background. And we see here in the book of Acts, starting to see two patterns really starting to develop. Number one, there is explosive growth in the Christian church at this time. Uh, we think of Pentecost, for example, when 3,000 souls were added. But uh, along the way, Luke gives us... Uh, I've heard them referred to in the past as panels of progress, but just a little progress reports on how quickly the church is growing, you know, increasing in number, multitudes, and so on. And then secondly, we see the second item we see in this pattern is persecution, and the Christians in particular being persecuted as they proclaim Christ. And this is, early on now, this is persecution uh, from the chief priests, scribes, and elders, the Sanhedrin, uh, the same group that, of course, made sure that Christ was crucified, is now going to continue its persecution uh, of any who are proclaiming Christ. And this kind of leads us in now to chapter 6. And let me read, first of all, um, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now we'll go back to the beginning here in in verse 1 and kind of take this apart a bit here and talk about it. Um, the disciples, it says, were increasing in number. Again, that's that pattern, one of the two items I was speaking about earlier. When we say disciples here, it's not a reference in verse 1 to the 12, but just to the followers in general, uh, devoted followers of Jesus, we might say, and they were increasing quickly and greatly. You can see the work of the Spirit here, working through the Word, Uh, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 10. 
and you can see that at work. Now, a bit of a disagreement, a bit of a, a bit of a friction here between two groups. The first group is called the Hellenists, and the second, the Hebrews. The Hellenists, first of all, would be Jews who had accepted the Greek language and culture. Uh, this was a big movement uh, during and after the time of Alexander the Great, who lived in the mid-4th century B.C., and there were some of the Jews who really uh, took on and liked the Greek uh, culture and language, and the Pharisees, for example, were absolutely working against this, this uh, tendency amongst some of the Jews. The Pharisees were sort of, the, you might say, the purists. They did not want the uh, Greek influences uh, in Judaism. And so at any rate, the Hellenists were those who were more Greek in their approach, and the Hebrews were simply the Jews in Jerusalem who were not taking on uh, such uh, a strong Greek influence in their lives. So the Hellenists, these Greeks, were complaining that their widows, the, the widows of the Hellenists, the Greek-influenced uh, ones, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Widows at that time uh, were, were very, very vulnerable in the society of that day, um, especially a widow who had no son. Um, and they were oftentimes taken advantage of, even legally, um, and had very little recourse when it came to any laws or any, any protection. And so these widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The daily distribution would be the distribution of food and perhaps other types of aid to them. And this was something that the church did back at that time, just as the church does today. Um, I think most uh, Christian congregations uh, have some sort of help that is given uh, to those who are hungry, to those who are um, in need uh, financially or in some other way, uh, materially, physically. Um, and, of course, our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, helps on a national level uh, with those who are in need as well especially after disasters have uh, stricken a particular area or territory. So the church has always uh, uh, been very active in assisting the poor. And we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but if we went back into the Old Testament, we saw that God, even in setting up uh, the rules for how fields of, of grain should be harvested, um, left provisions for those who were hungry, saying that the field should not be harvested all the way to the edge. And that was done intentionally as a provision from God for those who were traveling and were hungry. So, again, this is uh, something that has always been, you might say, in the DNA of the church. And, of course, we know the, the main mission of the church is the proclamation of the gospel, word and sacrament, but also the church has, as a result of Christ's command to love one another as he has loved us, uh, has always uh, been there to help with physical needs as well. So we get a little window into the controversy here between these two groups. There is friction here. 
and they come up with a solution. Verse 2, and the 12, now this would be the 12 disciples here, not, not the broader, bigger number, but the 12, and the full number of disciples. So the 12 and the bigger group of devoted followers. Uh, the 12 said to them, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Uh, we could say a lot here. Um, it is the main mission, or should be the main mission of pastors, that's their, their call actually, is to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. That is the main thing uh, that they are called to do, the main functions that they have. Uh, so this is a word, first of all, that speaks to pastors. And sometimes pastors um, can be tempted to get involved in a lot of other things. Now, pastor, of course, does many other things in the parish and in parish ministry, but those other things should not uh, cause him to neglect the main things, the proclamation of the word, the administration of the sacraments. And this speaks also then to congregations, uh, leadership in congregations, that not to be uh, having your pastor involved in so many other things, physical things uh, around the church and so on, that he neglects the proclamation of the word and the administration of the sacraments. I once, when I was out of the seminary for just a little while, heard of a pastor, um, and I thought this was, was quite good. Uh, this pastor went to a church that expected him to be at every meeting, uh, including the meeting of the trustees. And the pastor reasoned with them and said, look, if there is something that you are discussing in the board of trustees, and it is a, a spiritual matter that um, you know impacts worship or the ministry of the church here, I will be glad to attend and address whatever that item might be. Perhaps, for example, some physical uh, item in the sanctuary area or something of that kind. But he said to them, you know, you have not called me here to have discussions about the changing of light bulbs in the parking lot lights. And that is really true. And so this pastor, I thought, really had a good set of priorities guided by exactly this, that the physical things should not get in the way of and cause neglect of the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. So here's the solution, verse 3. Uh, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or reputation. So in other words, the apostles are not picking these seven guys. It's the group themselves of the larger group of devoted disciples from them, they are going to appoint or choose, uh, you might say, uh, these seven. Notice they are to be people of good reputation, people of good integrity, we might say, and, and that integrity is known to the, the Christian community. Uh, pick out, then, seven men of good reputation. Notice, full of the Spirit, and that phrase is used a number of times in the book of Acts, but men who are guided by the Spirit and of wisdom. So they have a, a wisdom in terms of knowing what to do in given circumstances. 
whom, notice now, the apostles will appoint to this duty. What is this duty? It is the serving of tables. Now, this word in Greek is the word for service, diakonia. And it is used throughout the New Testament for service. It is also, there is later on in the New Testament, a particular office uh, called that of deacon. And we don't have, again, enough time here to get into all the ins and outs. Whether this was a particular office this early on in the book of Acts, or whether the word is just used here for the serving of tables, I tend to agree with that particular interpretation of it myself. But the whole thing was, they were to come up with people of good reputation who were wise, and they would make sure that these Greek widows, and all others for that, uh, for that matter, were served appropriately and received the aid and the help uh, that they needed. And uh, then they said, verse 4, But we, the apostles, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That was the ministry given them by Christ. And that was the ministry that they wisely are saying here they are going to devote themselves to. Notice here how they did not get involved in the fray themselves. They did not make some sort of a statement about the Hellenists or the Jews. They simply came up with a wonderful solution here that there will be some who will be chosen, who will devote themselves to that part of the ministry. There, and the apostles, on the other hand, will do what they have been given to do by Christ the ministry of prayer and the proclamation of the word, the ministry of the word, as it's called here. So, verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen. Now, this is the first time we uh, hear of Stephen here. We're going to hear about him, of course, in chapter 7 coming up. They chose Stephen. He is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that while Stephen was chosen here for this particular uh, ministry of service, the serving of tables, he uh, obviously had other gifts of proclamation as well. And it's kind of hinted at here when it says that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip is the next one, uh, and it seems that he is, uh, also has some evangelism skills we find out later on. The others who are named here, we really don't know a whole lot about. Uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, uh, Nicolaus. Uh, we, Nicolaus is described as a proselyte of Antioch. So he would be a Gentile convert. Uh, by the way, these are all Greek names. So we think that these, would, these guys would have been probably uh, leaders or at least acknowledged or recognized people among the Hellenists, on the Hellenist side. And that is, again, making sure that these Hellenist uh, widows, these uh, Greek-influenced widows, are not being neglected. They, with all Greek names, would have a, uh, probably from that group themselves and would have a vested interest in making sure that things go well. These they set before the apostles, and they, this would be the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on them. So, it's the apostles who actually, you might say, install into office with prayer and the laying on of hands these uh, seven who are going to function uh, in this way. 
Now, verse 7, we get again one of these progress reports. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that surprising? That uh, the, the Holy Spirit is at work through the word, even among some of the priests uh, in Jerusalem, those who would be uh, in charge of the uh, sacrifices and the sacrificial system, even some, some of them are coming to faith now in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, you know, they would have had a vested interest, actually, in keeping the sacrificial system going and uh, abiding by it. But even here we see that even some of them uh, are believing. All right, now we have a we skip now to, uh, we're going to look at verse 8. Uh, let me read 8 and 9 here, and then we'll go back and talk about this. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So here again we see that Stephen right away although he is given this ministry of serving tables along with the other six, he is um, doing great wonders and signs. So he is performing miracles among the people. And now a dispute uh, begins. Uh, now this is not at the temple. This is some who belong to the synagogue of the freed men. Um, we don't know exactly what this synagogue of the freed men is, um, there are a couple of rumors. I read one note that talked about uh, that it was Jews from Italy who had been freed from slavery. Uh, it might have been simply people from all over, and these cities are named, who were freed from their slavery as well. Now, the synagogue is different from the temple. Uh, the synagogue is simply a house of prayer. Uh, sacrifices were not uh, take, made there. The sacrifices were made, of course, in, at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, the sac the uh, synagogue was a place where the Jews gathered. It was a um, social gathering, first of all, uh, brought them together in different towns, different cities, uh, not only in Jerusalem as we have here, but throughout all of Asia Minor. Uh, it was a place where scripture was read. Commentary was made on scripture. We have Jesus, of course, that famous scene in his uh, hometown synagogue in Nazareth where he reads Isaiah 61, the scroll, closes it up and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, places where scripture, again, was discussed and debated um, and so on. So there was a dispute. Uh, some of these from, the, from this particular synagogue uh, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And so the dispute, of course, is going to be over Christ and uh, the preaching of Christ as Savior. So these are not Christians here. These are Jews who are rising up against Stephen and the Jewish Christians, and in particular Stephen's uh, preaching and teaching. So now, uh, Stephen, and verse 2 there, Stephen said, now we have a big uh, gap here. We're going to skip from verse 2 in this reading all the way to verse 51 
and look at verses 51 through 60. Stephen says a lot, obviously, in these verses, but near the end here is where things really uh, get interesting and tempers really, conflict really rises. So verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. A couple of things here. Stiff-necked people um, would be, if you think of a, an animal who is yoked and has a yoke around the animal to try and control the animal and turn it from one direction to another, you think of this animal stiffening up its neck muscles or, or tightening up its neck muscles so it will not be turned. It will not uh, go in a particular direction. Um, so when he says they are a stiff-necked people, uh, that's the comparison he's making. He's making a statement uh, literally about how stubborn they are and how they will not uh, um, go a particular direction, in this, in this case uh, toward Christ, but they are resisting. Uncircumcised in heart is having an, an unrepentant heart, a heart that is not in keeping with God's covenant. So this is, of course, law that he is preaching to them, that they are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uh, so totally resistant to God's working in them and totally resistant, of course, to uh, the word of God and uh, especially that preaching of Christ. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Now, the righteous one, of course, would be Christ. And he recounts for them the history that they knew, how their <clears throat> forefathers did persecute uh, the prophets and even uh, kill them. The righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Well, that's, of course, a reference to Christ. Um, the righteous one, you, have, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he is calling them out as lawless ones who actually killed the righteous one of God. So obviously things are coming to a head here. Verse 54, now when they, this would be these, uh, these uh, Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. This grinding of the teeth was a, um, a custom. It was a way of expressing anger back in Bible times. They, they actually would, from what I read, show their teeth. They would, they would uh, you know, pull their lips back and show their teeth and would grind their teeth. Uh, as an expression of their anger. So these guys are just enraged at this point uh, uh, with what Stephen has said about them, about their forefathers. And 50, verse 55, but he, that would be Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Um, and Christ, of course, promised um, that the Spirit would direct them. If you want to look, we won't look now, but in Luke 12, verses 11 through 12, uh, Jesus promised that the Spirit would direct them. Uh, he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, God's radiant uh, presence and appearance in heaven. 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, that place of honor and glory and authority and power. Uh, he was, uh, Stephen was given uh, this to see, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they knew exactly, when he said Son of God, he knew they were referring to Jesus, which to them was completely unacceptable. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So they are just losing control now. And again, as I said before, we see the persecution of the church uh, from, uh, from Jews. Uh, verse uh, 57, or, I'm sorry, I read 57, or 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here's the first uh, introduction we have to Saul, who, of course, later uh, is going to be converted in Acts 9 and will become the Apostle Paul. But here's the first uh, little glimpse we have of him. Um, they, he is sort of the one watching their outer garments. They would take their outer garments off so that, of course, they could hurl the stones all the faster and with greater um, authority. And uh, I won't go into it, but there was a methodology that they followed when they would stone people using the different sizes of stones, uh, first of all, and then heavy, heavy stones uh, to make sure the person was, was dead. Verse 59, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's kind of a, a, a reference here. Uh, you can certainly hear an echo of what Christ said uh, from the cross, can't we? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, it's a reference to what happens at death with the soul or the spirit uh, going to be with the Lord. Verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, again, a, a, an echo of what Jesus says from the cross. Uh, if you want to look, it's Luke 23, verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here Stephen uh, is, is echoing that quote, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And the Bible uses that expression many times to talk about death, especially the death of a Christian, um, using sleep as the, as the way of expressing it. So, uh, terrible violence uh, against the Christian church here. Actually, the first martyr here, someone dying as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ, rather than denounce that faith. Um, it's shocking uh, to us, but it is not the last that we will see. Paul is going to uh, face a great deal of, of uh, turbulence and persecution, uh, beatings and so on, uh, as a result of his Christian faith and the proclamation of Christ as Savior. All right, so that ends our uh, first lesson from Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now let's read uh, our epistle lesson for this Sunday, and this comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. Uh, 
Let me read just the first few verses here, and then we'll go back and talk about it. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me stop there um, and just talk about this. There's a comparison made here um, between uh, the nutrition that we would have physically, the milk, for example, that a child would receive, which would uh, be nutritious for that child, and spiritual nutrition. Paul speaks here about, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. And, of course, we as Lutherans would... um, long for God's, what we would call, means of grace. Again, his word and his sacraments. And especially that word, first of all, that continues to uh, nurture us and feed us in the faith, the Holy Spirit continuing to work through that word. Um, And, of course, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we receive the body and blood of of our Savior by his promise and the forgiveness of our sin. That's what we might call growing up, as Peter says here, or maturing in the faith. And just speaking as a pastor, um, how wonderful it is to watch this process happen uh, in the lives of people, especially in the lives of children, but in adults as well. Um, It's a real blessing as a pastor to see that through the instruction of the Word, uh, we're in that time of the year now where um, confirmations are taking place. Uh, we're pretty challenged at this time of the year. I know here at St. Paul's we are, are forced to delay our confirmation, our confirmands this year, uh, until a much later date, uh, most likely in August. But this is the time of year when we step back and see, you know, as a pastor, just give thanks to God for the growth that has taken place as these young people have been instructed further in the faith and have, as Paul says here, grown up uh, into salvation. It's not that they weren't saved. Of course they were saved uh, from the time of their baptism, but there's a maturing process, a, a growing up process, you might say. And we see that process in adults also in Bible class. Uh, as maybe for the first time uh, they understand something that has been sort of a mystery to them in the past or that maybe they had a misconception about. Uh, I just love it when somebody comes up after Bible class and says, you know, that's the first time I've really understood that, or I always thought it was this, but now I understand that it's this. And that's exactly what this process that that Peter is talking about here, that, you know, long for, or hunger for that, that pure spiritual milk and through it be nurtured and grow up in your faith. Um, if indeed, he says in verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And, and that taste of the Lord is good, of course, is a reference to faith, believing um, and, and seeing that the Lord is good through faith, which God gives us, of course. Verse 4, as you come to him, that would be Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We're going to move into some imagery here now 
of a building and of stones. First of all, Christ is referred to as a living stone who was rejected by men. Uh, We think of the uh, passage in John where John writes, you know, he came to his own and his own knew him not. Um, This rejection of Christ by men who is, as he says here, a living stone in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Just as God's people in the Old Testament were a chosen people and precious to him, so, of course, his own son, chosen for this mission, the mission to come and give his life as a ransom for many. He was chosen for that and is precious. Um, uh, you know, twice uh, the father refers to his son as his beloved son, uh, both at his baptism and at his transfiguration, with whom he is well pleased. So chosen and precious. Then verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in, as a spiritual house. So we ourselves now, it's a way of uh, thinking of, of the church as a spiritual house comprised of living stones being built up. Notice we're passive here. The Word, God, Holy Spirit, and Word are building us up as a spiritual house. We don't build ourselves up. We are built up through God's, again, means of grace, through through whom he works in this life of sanctification, of being built up, and maturing, growing up further and further. Um, Now, you yourselves are being built up like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's yet another way of looking at us as a holy priesthood. All Christians... Um, our priests, we might say, not in the, not in the um, clergy or clerical way, but we are a priesthood who offers our own sacrifices, of, first of all, of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, I think of uh, Romans chapter 12, where Paul uh, tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A sacrifice is something that we offer to God, in thanksgiving and praise uh, for what he has done for us and blessed us with. We're not sacrificing to try and gain his favor, gain his love and his, his um, favor and acceptance, but after he has already blessed us with his, his grace, his unmerited, undeserved love and favor. So we are a holy priesthood, all of us. And we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we have access to the Father. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can offer gifts that are holy and acceptable to him. And what a joy and what a privilege to be able to do that on a daily basis. Now, we're going to have a series of quotes here from the Old Testament that kind of buttress this or... or, uh, Make this firm. Uh, Verse 6 For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, this is a, an Old Testament quote of Isaiah 28, verse 16. Isaiah, living about 700 years before Christ would walk this earth, and this, we would say, is a prediction of Christ. Christ is that stone, that cornerstone, who is chosen and precious. Here we see uh, Peter repeating uh, what he did up in verse 4. Again, referring to the living stone, chosen and precious in verse 4, right here, quoting Isaiah 28:16, this stone is chosen and precious, and it's significant that it refers to this stone, which again we would say is Christ, as a cornerstone. The cornerstone was a, the most important stone. It was what uh, was laid first and what lined up the walls that went out from, out, uh, from it uh, in two different directions. Um, it was an L-shaped stone that, that was used to guide uh, the building of two additional walls from that corner. And so that cornerstone had to be precisely right and correct and true Otherwise, the whole building uh, would be crooked and would be off. And so it's another way of saying that Christ is that cornerstone. He is that most important stone, chosen and precious. And uh, what a wonderful line here. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice again the all-inclusive uh, nature of this. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then next, verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, uh, but for those who do not believe. Um, and so the honor is given, the favor is given, uh, obviously by grace through faith. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders here is another way of people, referring to people, and in this case, uh, certainly uh, likely a reference to the Jewish religious authorities of the day uh, that in our last lesson uh, we, we looked at, um, you know, jailing the apostles and so on, rejecting, totally rejecting Christ as the Messiah. And the, 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 the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's again a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. And so Christ is the cornerstone. Uh, of, of the church. He is the most important Messiah, the honored Messiah whose life, death, and resurrection is in fact the cornerstone for, for all that we believe, teach, and confess, and all that we do. It's the heart and core. Now, verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is quoted from Isaiah 8 verse 14. Uh, Christ, for those who do not believe, is in fact a stumbling block. Instead of being a cornerstone, he's a block over which they stumble. In other words, it's a way of looking at unbelief and rejection of, of the cornerstone. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Now, we've got to be very careful with verse 8 here. As they were destined to do is not referring to predestination, that God predestined some to damnation or condemnation. 
they were destined to disobey because of their unbelief. In other words, it's the natural um, result of their unbelief. And so again, we're not talking about a, some sort of a predestination to damnation here. So notice that there are only two, two reactions to Christ. Either Christ is the cornerstone, and by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, um, we are being built up as the spiritual house, or by, by rejection, by disbelief, unbelief, we, people stumble over Christ. There are only the two reactions that are possible. And we thank and praise God that we are, as by his working, in verse 9, but you, Peter says, are a chosen race. So just as Christ is chosen and precious, and just as God's people in the Old Testament were a chosen people, so God's people today, we are a chosen race, Peter says, uh, chosen by God's grace, not because of any merit or worthiness on our part. He says we are a royal priesthood. Again, a priesthood offering sacrifices and royal because we belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. A holy nation. Holy meaning we are set apart for God's use. Uh, that we are blameless in his sight as a result of his work in us. A people for his own possession. Yes, he bought us. He purchased us. We are his. Gladly, we are his. And what's the result? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We do with both our lips and our lives as this holy nation proclaim the excellencies of him. And that's, of course, of our gracious God who called us out of darkness, namely sin and, and alienation and death, called us from that to the marvelous light, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Some beautiful you know, contrast between what we were and what we are now. Once we were not a people, that's, that's very, very true. Uh, all of us were separate, alienated from God, uh, not belonging um, to God. And now we are a people, God's people. And once you had not received mercy, now mercy would be not getting what we really deserve. I always say, if I'm going down, uh, let's say I'm in a, uh, going down a road and the speed limit is, is 40 and I'm doing 60 and I get pulled over, I deserve a ticket. But perhaps the police uh, officer would have mercy on me and would not give me a ticket, would give me only a warning. That would be uh, receiving mercy in that situation. The same is true in our lives. What we deserve by nature, of course, is death, eternal death and condemnation. But instead, we have mercy. God has had mercy upon us. And by his grace, his undeserved love, undeserved merit, we receive instead what we had no right to expect or deserve, namely forgiveness of all sin. 
the resurrection of the body and everlasting life in his presence. That is all ours because of his grace. All right, I'm looking at the time, and we're going to have to scoot along here. Uh, we will look at the gospel lesson, John 14, verses 1 through 14. And some background here. We're on Monday, Thursday evening. Christ is with the disciples in the upper room. He has made some very disturbing statements to them earlier. He has uh, told them that he is, he is leaving them, and uh, where he is going, they cannot come. Uh, just imagine how the disciples must have felt at that point. Uh, they had, for the better part of three years, left everything and followed him, and now he's talking about leaving them. And then, uh, further on, uh, in John 13, the previous chapter, um, he, he has told Peter that uh, he is, Peter is going to deny him three times before uh, the rooster would crow. That would, of course, lead them to think that there's going to be some sort of a trial, some sort of a, you know, a, a bad situation, some sort of a um, dangerous situation that's going to lead uh, Peter to even deny Christ. And so they are all very disturbed as we begin John chapter 14. And Jesus here uh, is going to reassure them and try to calm them, uh, calm their troubled hearts here. So starting at verse 1 of, of uh, John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. And that's a, uh, a verb, a tense, it's, it's a present imperative or a present command. So it means something to the effect of uh, do not keep being troubled. You know, stop being troubled. So in other, in other words, again, they are troubled right at this point. Believe in God, believe also in me. And here is Jesus, of course, equating himself uh, with the Father. Uh, there are a lot of different ways of interpreting this statement right here. Um, but in effect, they, he wants to tell them, you know, you do believe in God, or maybe it is a command, believe in God. Believe also in me, or trust also in me. So in other words, he has told them he's going away, but he wants them to trust him here. He's saying here, in my father's house, verse 2, are many rooms. Now the father's house would be a reference, we believe, to heaven, uh, <clears throat> the heavenly dwelling place, are many rooms, or many dwelling places. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And this is a question, of course, that um, assumes or expects a yes answer. In other words, if it were not so, I wouldn't have been telling you this, uh, is his point. In other words, I wouldn't be lying to you or deceiving you. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. These are very, very comforting words, not only for these disciples, but they are for us as well. Uh, we think of Christ as preparing those heavenly dwelling places, not only for the disciples, but for all Christians, uh, all of his children through faith. And, of course, where he is going to go first and make preparation uh, is not heaven, but is the cross. And it will be, of course, uh, less than 24 hours from him speaking these words where he will be on the cross 
uh, preparing a place with his blood shed and his life given. And it's only through that that we have access to the Father and the Father's house and the many dwelling places uh, that are there. But again, what comforting words. He's going to go and prepare a place, but he will come again and will take them, take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So again, a beautiful reassurance. He is, first of all, going to come back again, of course, following his resurrection, and for 40 days uh, will be appearing to them and to many others. Paul says uh, up to 500 at one time uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. But he is eventually, of course, going to ascend and be with the Father. And so this is also certainly a reference to his second coming um, on a day that none of us uh, can predict. But he will come again in glory, as we confess, to judge between the living and the dead. And on that day, the, the uh, bodies of all believers will rise and are, be reunited with our souls. And we will, all believers, will go to be with the Lord, body and soul, for an eternity. So again, he wants to comfort them there with this assurance. Uh, verse 4 and you know the way to where I am going. Uh, the way, of course, Jesus is saying that they already know, is, of course, himself and all of his teaching, all that he has said about himself. You know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so Thomas here, very confused, as no doubt were the other disciples, whenever Jesus started talking about going away. And the big verse here is verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. So he not only uh, teaches them the way, he is the way. And notice I always point out here that Jesus uses the definite article. He doesn't say I am a way to get there or I'm one of other possible ways of getting there. I am the way. And I am the truth. There aren't a bunch of truths out there. There is one truth when it comes to the way to everlasting life. And I am the life. Uh, so what, what a comfort that even though they will die, as we all will experience death, uh, unless Christ comes before that time comes in each of our lives, but we know the way, the truth, and the life. And it is Christ. It is Christ and everything about Christ. Uh, boy, we could talk a long time about this. And I suspect that uh, uh, in the preaching that we will hear next week, uh, many pastors will talk about, again, what I would call uh, the exclusive claim of Christianity, that there are not many ways. There is only one way, and it is Christ. And there are not many truths. So many people today, when you hear them talk, will talk about, well, that's your truth. I have a different truth. No, there's only one truth. And many people, unfortunately, look at salvation as, uh, you know, sort of a mountaintop, and we're all on different paths uh, to get up to the top. And, you know, as long as you persevere and stay uh, diligent in whatever path you're on, uh, we'll all get there eventually. Well, that's not scriptural. I mean, that might sound nice, but that is not scriptural. And Christ makes that very clear here. 
Uh, as we saw in the other lesson from Acts, uh, there, is, there are no sitting on the fence possibilities when it comes to Christ. It is either the way, the truth, or the life, or rejection and condemnation. And it is that simple. Now, if you had known me, verse 7, now of course they knew Christ, but if you had known me, Jesus says, in the sense of knowing exactly who I am and everything about me, if you had known all that, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So here we're going to launch into a section where Jesus is going to talk about himself and the Father and their relationship, the one divine essence we always say as we talk about the triune God, three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but not three separate gods, one divine essence, one God. But Jesus here is saying that he and the Father, in essence, are one, and if they had truly known him, truly known him for who he is, they would have also known the Father. And he says, now from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay? Um, let's go to verse 8. We've got to hurry up here. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. <laughs> you know, just to, just have the Father appear here, and that'll be enough for us. That'll be enough. It's, it's, almost, it's almost borderline humorous. Uh, he wants a theophany here. He wants, he wants God to make an appearance. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? It's kind of a mild rebuke here of Philip. Uh, you know, basically, he's telling him, you've had God here in your presence all this time. And we think of Jesus, of course, as not 50-50, not 50% God, 50% man, 100% God, 100% man, not making full use of his divine powers yet in his state of humiliation here. But nonetheless, they have had fully God in front of them in Jesus this whole time. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? And again, it expects a yes answer here. Uh, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Again, the, the complete and total, um, we might call it uh, interpenetration or um, complete uh, confluence here of the Father and the Son uh, in the Son. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So a couple things here. You know, believe that I and the Father are one, or as John often does, or Jesus in John, and John also, the works themselves. John uses that term sign to refer to the miracles of Jesus. You know, look at the works that have been done. Uh, and of course we think of John 20, verse 31, 30 and 31, that Jesus did many other signs that are not in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing might have life in his name. Then finally, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, 
and especially we think of those disciples. And uh, we get into the book of Acts, as we saw earlier, uh, the miracles that uh, uh, the disciples, uh, Peter and so on, were doing. Um, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now the asking in his name is asking, of course, in accord with his will. It's asking in accord with everything he has done and accomplished for us. And that asking, of course, is we know that it is his will uh, that we continue in the faith, that we continue to mature in that faith, and that our salvation uh, is maintained. Uh, the greater works that they would do, think of Pentecost and the 3,000 souls that were added. Think of all the people uh, that God is going to call to faith through the message that they would proclaim. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that we are out of time. It is always a pleasure to share God's word with you. And let's close now with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Blessings on the remainder of your day.